questions? Last week we uh, we talked last time about uh, saving faith and what saving faith is. And I gave you John MacArthur's acrostic of faith. Uh, we talked about faith is based in facts. The facts are must be accepted, they must be internalized, and they must be trusted. And the facts of faith are hope for the future. I gave you some homework to think about. I don't know if you remember that or if you did it. But I gave you some homework to think about this past week, thinking about the relationships that Paul has set up for us in, in this chapter. The first relationship was um, between wages and gift. And the second was between faith and salvation. And that particular relationship would be what we're talking about today. Um, and it raises a question of merit. The question of merit is how can a holy and just God justify those who are ungodly? And we'll try to answer that question today. Paul has already established that all flesh is ungodly. And there's no flesh that can be justified before God. So how can God justify ungodly people? But yet the scripture tells us that he did indeed do that. So let's read Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> what shall we say then that gave Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh has found. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scriptures? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your mighty and powerful act of offering salvation freely to all who will believe. And Father, we ask that you'd help us today as we just consider those things that you've done, those marvelous things, those great things, you've done in offering salvation to the ungodly. Father, we ask that you'd open our minds and hearts to your word today. Father, we ask that you call the, call the sinner to repentance today. And Father, we ask that you do all those things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Abraham was justified by faith and not by his works. We understand that if he had righteous works, then he would have earned some merit before God. 
but Abraham was just a man like we are. And Paul has already spent a great deal of time in Romans proving that, that no flesh is justified before God. His works were insufficient to merit any works or any goodness or any righteousness. Romans 3.23 just sums it all up. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So how can a holy and just God justify the ungodly? How can he? How can you take something bad and turn it into something good? Only God could do that. So let's look at that for a moment. The word, um, the Bible clearly says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So you see what's going on there. You have an ungodly man, Abraham, but yet God said he, he believed God and he counted it for righteousness. In other words, he saved Abraham. He justified him. Justification, I told you a few weeks ago, is the hinge pin of salvation. Because before anyone can be saved, they must be justified. And just as if you go to your bathroom door and take all the hinge pins out of the hinges, the door is just going to fall off and you're just going to be exposed. That's what he's talking about. The scholars are talking about when they say he's justification is the hinge pin. Because hinges without a pin are just pieces of metal. They're not going to do anything. They're not going to be able to swing a door or swing a gate. Uh, the, the word we're talking about, the Greek word, and you're fixing to hear me try to say a Greek word. <laughs> it might be funny, especially if you know what Greek is. Logitsonai. That's the word we're talking about. And when you study that word out, it has a lot of different ways it's translated in English because it's not a perfect word that we can just transliterate into English and we understand. It takes a lot of words for us to understand. And one of those words, we've already read it, was uh, counted. It was counted. To Abraham for righteousness. Um, in fact, it's used seven times from verse 4 or from verse 3 to verse 11. This word, Legithomai. Um, it's used seven times. In verse 3, it says it's, it is counted. Verse 4, it says, is not reckoned. In verse 5, it says, and counted. Verse 6, imputed. Verse 8, will impute. Verse 9, will reckon. Verse 10 is, was it reckoned? And verse 11, it says, might be imputed. All those are the same words, the same concept that we're trying to flesh out today. These are all of the same word group 
um, talking about that work or that saving act that God does to a sinner. Um, this is the word that links salvation to faith and poses the problem of merit. This is the saving act of God. God imputes faith to Abraham. He imputes it to him. God gave saving faith to Abraham. You understand that our, the faith that saves us is not from ourselves. God imputes it to us. Uh, it's a counting term, Jenna and Amy, wherever y'all are. It's give, putting something to someone's account that they didn't give or get or earn. It's just a gift. Imputing, reckoning, accounting to someone's account. God gave saving faith to Abraham. And Paul quotes uh, Genesis 15, 6 here. He says, and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And that story in that chapter, uh, God tells Abraham that he's going to make a great nation out of him. And Abraham questions, he says, God, how are you going to do that? Because I don't even have an heir in my, my house. The only heir in my house belongs to my servant, my head servant. And God says to Abraham, it's not going to be that guy. He's going to come from you. It's going to come from your loins. Abraham believed God. We understand it is God showing his righteousness and giving faith to Abraham. We are building upon this in the text. God showing his righteousness by justifying the ungodly. You'll see in, if, when you read the book of Revelation, you see where the righteousness of God is proclaimed. You see the great heavenly host gathered around the throne and they're just glorifying God because of his righteousness. That righteousness is... Yep. Dawn did. Can y'all hear me? Jeremy, can you hear me? Alright. I'll try to talk louder. That righteousness that God the heavenly host is proclaiming is that righteousness where he justifies the ungodly. God justifies sinners like you and me. He justified the sinner Abraham. He justified the sinner David and countless other people. And that's the righteousness that they're glorifying and worshiping God for in the book of Revelation. It was those verses that Pastor Doug read to us this morning in Psalms 117, is that God imputed righteousness to people so that they could read that, those two verses and glorify God because of it. <clears throat> We have not answered the why yet. We're just looking at what's going on here. We are looking at what God did to show his righteousness. It is God's righteousness on display and not Abraham. 
you see, that's what Paul is addressing in this chapter, is that the Jews, the Jewish understanding of righteousness and the calling of Abraham is that somehow God looked at Abraham and he saw that he did righteous stuff. Well, Paul is clearly departing from that teaching that the Jews had. And we often have the same thing, the same thing in our natural mind. We read those things and say, oh, Abraham was a righteous guy, so therefore God saved him. No, that's a wrong interpretation. And that's what Paul is realigning. He's departing from that. He says, no. Abraham was justified because God imputed to him the faith to believe. It is God's righteousness on display and not Abraham's. Remember, no flesh is justified before God. We talked about that in Romans chapter 3. No flesh is justified. We, so we understand that God has to show his righteousness. God is showing his righteousness by imputing righteousness to a sinner. Notice the action here. God gives Abraham faith, and Abraham believes, and Abraham is obedient. To give you a statement that one of my grandkids often say, they say, wait, what? Wait, what, Pastor Jim? How is it that God gave Abraham faith? How is it? Don't we just have faith built into us? We often use that term, so I have faith in my chair over there, so I sit in it. Or I have faith in this roof that it's not going to fall on my roof, so I walk under it. It's not that kind of faith. It's a faith that only God gives. And just to show you what I'm talking about, turn over your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says there in verse 8, he says, For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Let's just look at that verse for a minute. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. What's not of yourself? He's referring back to the faith. He's referring back to the grace. Grace and faith are not of yourself, it's of God. And he says it's a gift of God. So if you have grace, if you're experiencing the grace of God, and you have gained great faith, it's because God gave it to you as a gift. Not of works, lest any should boast, lest any man should boast. This passage tells us it's not of ourselves, but it's a gift of God. Look at Rome or Galatians, turn over to the left there in your Bible, to Galatians chapter 3. 
verse 6, it says, Even as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. You see here the action. It was accounted to him. It was given to him. Let's see if this helps. Turn over in your Bible to James chapter 2. A different author. It's not just not just Paul telling us this. It's a different author. James chapter 2. <clears throat> James chapter 2 verse 23 says this. And this is God's word. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God. So far, so good. It was imputed unto him for righteousness. What's the it in that phrase? The it is the faith that God gave him. It's the faith that God imputed to him. And he was called a friend of God. You see, James is saying the same thing, but uses a different form of the same Greek word. Imputed. But it helps us to understand what Paul is saying. Look back to Romans chapter 4. Verse 4, it says, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So if any person was rewarded because of their work, it would be rewarded because God owed them something. But Paul has already spent a great deal of time in Romans explaining to us that no flesh is justified before God. But if there was a work that was worthy of justification, it would be because of debt. If you work for something, you earn you earn your wages. And by, uh, Paul brings in another term that we're familiar with, and it's the word grace. This whole saving action is grace. This whole thing we're talking about is the grace of God. How that God saves sinners. It's the grace of God. What does that mean? I heard one preacher say, actually, I've heard a lot of preachers say that we are sinners and we're run, running, we're living our life headed to hell. Without the saving grace, without the saving faith that God gives, every one of us is bound for hell. That's where we're going. That's the point of what Paul says when no flesh is justified before God. Everyone is headed to hell. That's that's our path. Sometimes, especially earlier in my life, I remember they presented the gospel like we're on this neutral path and we either choose to go to heaven or we choose to go to hell. No, we're already going to hell. We're already going there. That's where we're headed. And but for the grace of God, he chooses some. Some come, he saves some, he gives some. And it's not, I, I can't understand how 
God figures out who to save and who not. That's God's business. And we don't want to sit back and say that, well, if that's God's business, why do I need to tell anybody about Christ? It's because God called us to do that. He tells us throughout the Bible to go and proclaim his goodness. Go and talk about his goodness. Go talk about his mercy. Go talk about his grace. Paul says there in verse 4, Romans 4, that... Um, this action is moved forward. If it was moved forward by works, then it would be debt. You know, you work and you earn something. And whoever you're working for, you have a, they have a debt to pay you for that work. In other words, works are Abraham's part. On Abraham's part would mean that he deserved to receive justification. That's what verse 4 is talking about. If anyone had works not tainted with sin, his works would be justifiable. But the problem is, all of our works are tainted with sin. Everyone has a sin problem. Therefore, they cannot be justified by their merit. You know, you read in the Bible, it talks about sometimes they'll use yeast or leavening as an illustration of sin. When you put yeast or you put buttermilk and bacon soda together or you put baking powder and salt together, it causes bread to rise. That's what causes biscuits to rise. That's what causes pancakes to rise. That's what causes our white bread to rise. Are those two, those ingredients. And that's what sin does to us. It infects all of us. Now, I've made bread a few times. I'm no expert or anything, but you never see part of a loaf of bread rise. The whole thing rises. You know, it's not flat on one side and rose on the other side. The whole thing is infected by the grease, the yeast. Everyone has a sin problem. Then in Romans 5, 4, 5, <clears throat> on the other hand, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's what we're talking about today is how we're trying to understand how that God can justify the ungodly. You see the working here? How uh, he that worketh not but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Believing 
on the one who justifies the ungodly, that believing, that faith, is counted or is reckoned or is imputed to that person. Just believing on the one that gave you the faith. Paul brings in another person to support his argument here in verses 6 through 8. Paul realigns the Jewish thinking of Abraham by showing that God imputed faith to him and his and God's righteousness to magnify himself and not Abraham. God's righteousness didn't magnify Abraham. It wasn't Abraham's faith. It wasn't Abraham's righteousness. It was God's righteousness. Now he talks about David to support his point. Verse 6, it says, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. Paul brings David, who for a period of time tried to hide his sin of adultery and murder. If you remember David's life, there was a time when he he was home from battle. He decided to stay home and not go to battle with his army. And he was up on the roof of his house. And he looked over and he saw Bathsheba. And then he committed adultery and finally he committed murder in that relationship. And that, in Psalms 32, tells us about that. Psalms 32, turn over in your Bible, because I want you to see this for yourself. Psalms 32. We're going to spend a little time here, so it's worth turning over there to see what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Psalm tells us of the weight of sin that David felt and the deliverance from it. This is the act of God imputing faith to David. This is a saving act we're fixing to look at here, of God imputing righteousness to someone who was a sinner. Look at verse 1. It says, blessed, this is a quote that Paul quoted um, in Romans 4. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. This is saving faith. This is a saving act right here that David is speaking of. This is saving faith in action. Notice the weight of sin before it was imputed. Verses 3 and 4. Look at those verses. When I kept silent, my bones waxed old through the roarings all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into draught of summer. Selah. This is the weight of sin that David felt. The weight of sin makes your bones feel old. And it roars in you all the day long. When God imputes to you his righteousness it fleshes out 
your sin. When God imputes his faith on you, your your sin becomes heavy upon you. It's heavy in your heart. It takes away your sleep. It takes away your peace when your sin is weighing on you. David says, day and night the weight of God's righteousness is heavy on you. Makes you feel old. The lie of putting on the front to others saying, I'm good. Have you ever had the weight of your sin and you can't hide it on your face? And you're, you're just going about your life and see, and someone comes to you and says, are you all right? Because they can clearly see on your face that something is going on with you. But yet we try to hide it. <laughs> it's a lie. We try to hide it. And we say, you know what? I'm good. I'm okay. And when we try to conceal that lie, who are we concealing it from? From ourselves. We don't want to face it. It makes our mouth dry. You know when you tell a lie, it makes your mouth dry? There's nothing. I saw one TV show once and that's the way he used it. Made a lie detector. He got some Rice Krispies. Made the person eat those Rice Krispies to see if he was telling a lie. And if you try to eat Rice Krispies and your mouth is dry, it just won't work. <laughs> They're stuck in your mouth. The lie detector, Rice Krispies. <clears throat> Look at verse 5 of Psalm 32. It says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquities have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Now that's the remedy for sin. And that's the way of salvation. Confessing your sin. Repentance. The end of the ver- that verse says, And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. When God forgives your sin, it's as it were a great weight lifted from you. You lose your bones. When we, when we spend all that time in, in Pilgrim's Progress, the beginning of the book he talked about that weight on his back that weight of sin on his back when he came to the cross or rolled away when we come to Christ when we come to God in repentance and faith he grants that faith that we can believe that weight of sin rolls right off you just feel lighter David repented of his sin and God forgave him. Verse 6 it says, For this shall everyone that is godly pray 
unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. God instructed the sinner to come while the Lord may be found. You're here today and you're a sinner and you got that weight of sin on you. Come to the Lord when he may be found. Verse 7, it says, Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. When we come to Christ in repentance and faith, and we're delivered from that weight of sin, this is what it feels like. Verse 7, let me read it again. God is our hiding place. God preserves us in trouble. And we get songs of deliverance in our heart. This doesn't mean that our life is all of a sudden going to become a bed of rosy. Because that sin, if you read that whole story about David and the sin that he committed, the murder that he committed, and the adultery that he committed, there was still a price for David to pay for that. And it's a marvelous story of grace. Because the prophet came to him and he says, what do you want done? And he gave him a few things. He says, what do you want to happen to you because of this sin? And David said, I'm going to follow the mercy of the Lord. And there was a plague that went out among the people, and people were dying. And David went up to the threshing floor. He made this amazing statement to the owner of that threshing floor. He says, I want to buy this threshing floor from you. I want to buy these oxen from you for this sacrifice so the plague that will be stayed among the people. And the person that owned this, this stuff said, I'll just give it to you. You're the king. I'll give it to you. And David made this amazing statement. He said, I will not offer a sacrifice to the Lord that doesn't cost me something. If you're going to make a sacrifice to the Lord, it's got to cost you something. It's a sacrifice. Anyway, he did all that stuff, and the plague was stayed. But even in all of that, even though David had to suffer those consequences for his sin, even though the nation had to suffer those consequences because of David's sin. They allowed it to go on. They knew about it. They allowed it to go on. David could say, verse 7, he preserved him in the trouble. The Lord compassed David you know, he surrounded David. And he gave him songs of deliverance. That's what happens 
person comes in repentance and faith. Your sin is lifted. Even though you may have to face the consequences of your sin, you still know that through it, you're going to be preserved. Through it, God is going to compass you. He's going to give you songs of deliverance. Obedience to imputed faith leads to obedience to repent. But there is preservation in trouble and songs of deliverance. David had to face the consequences of sin, but God preserved him through it and gave him deliverance through it. David gives more instructions in verses 8 through 11. He says, in verse 8, it says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. When David experienced that deliverance, that forgiveness of that sin, he was now qualified to tell others about it. He was able to go share the gospel with other people. He said, this is what I did. I committed murder. I committed adultery. And God forgave me of that. God can, can forgive you of your sin. Verse 9, it says, Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which has no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near to thee. David's instruction is, don't be like a horse. And you know the other name for... A mule. Don't be like that. The horse and the mule has to have a bridle in their mouth to make them go in the right direction. Don't be like that. Come willingly. Come with a heart, a repentant heart. Come in faith. Verse 10, it says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Verse 11, Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous. Shout for, shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. That's the victory song of a person who comes to in repentance and faith. That is the saving act. That's the result of a saving act that God does. Don't be the, like the horse or the mule that must be forced to comply, but go willingly. Worship the Lord for his display of righteousness in you. come to salvation, that is God's display of righteousness in you. How can a righteous and holy God justify the ungodly when he says that he will not justify the wicked? So how could David say that? How could Abraham say that? Though they were wicked and sinful. Turn over in your Bible. 
Isaiah chapter 53. It'll answer that question. How can God impute righteousness? How can God justify the ungodly? Here's the answer. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So in order for God to justify the ungodly, then the godly had to take the sin. The only godly person, the only righteousness, righteous person, took that sin. Just as God's grace just as God imputes faith to a sinner, those sins of that sinner were imputed to Christ. That's what he's talking about there, Isaiah. Our sin was laid on him. We could say that the righteousness of God was laid on us. our sin was laid on Christ. Abraham was saved because his sin was laid on Christ. David was saved because his sin was laid on Christ. Jesus bore the sin of Abraham. Jesus bore the sin of David. And Jesus bore your sin. And as I was studying that, I couldn't help but to end all this with this. We already sang it this morning, but I'm going to try to read it and not sing it. It says, Oh, it says, Oh, come, all you unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, no, you're not alone. Oh, come, barren and waiting one. Weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born in you. Christ is born for you. Oh, come, bitter and broken. Come with fears unspoken. Come taste his perfect love. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. Oh, come guilty and hiding ones. There is no need to run. See what your God has done. He's the lamb who was given. 
slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, come, he is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Sinner, come to the Lord today, come to him. If your sin is on your mind right now, it is God calling you to repentance and faith. If the weight of your sin is on you, that's God calling you to repent. Run to the Savior today. Come to the Savior today. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the marvelous, righteous act of justifying sinners. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We honor you. We worship you. Because of that saving act, because Christ bore our sin, Christ took the punishment of our sin, the iniquity, my iniquity was laid on Christ, your iniquity was laid on Christ. Father, we thank you and we praise you and we honor you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's stand and we'll sing our last song. Pastor Jim, let's sing together, prepare him room. <laughs> 